for the last couple of months now, we've been going through the book of Hebrews, and we're, we're coming towards the end of it, uh, but last week we began looking at chapter number 11, and chapter number 11 is famously all about faith. And as a pastor, it takes a little more for me to walk by faith and a little more faith for me to follow Jesus. I mean, can you imagine if I came home after church tonight and looked at April and said, April, I just, I just don't believe in God anymore. That'd be kind of hard for her to hear, and it would be kind of hard for me to do my job. I mean, my number one job, the number one job prescription is, is he a Christian? Christian? Yeah, yes, yes, check, there. Now you're, you can apply for the job. But if I'm not a Christian, you know, it's very hard for me to lead people to follow God. So it's really easy for me to walk with God and to do Christian things without real faith. But that's only going to take you so far. Many Christians, they squeak through their Christian life without ever really having to be confronted with hard questions about their faith. You know, taking your kids to church and doing church the same way you've always done it because that's what you're comfortable with, that is not a bold risk of faith. And for, for many of us, it's just the path of least resistance. And so we, we do what we're used to doing and what's easy for us. And, well, I'm, I'm reading my Bible at least every day and I'm praying every day. And so I'm doing, I'm doing the most I can do and my faith is strong. And so we just go easily through our Christian life without really growing or stretching our faith. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that without faith, we can't please God. Without living a life of bold faith, we're not going to live a life that's pleasing and honoring to God. And we saw last week what God-pleasing faith is. Of course, the author says in chapter six, in verse number 6 that, that God-pleasing faith is believing that God is and that God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. So we said that believing that God is is believing that God is sovereign. That God is truly in control when everything is going great and everybody is healthy and your life is good and the sun is shining. God's in control. But you know what? When your life's in, in misery, when you're, you're having marital problems, when you're having physical problems, when you're having financial problems and you just don't understand what's going on, God is still in control. But it's also that God's good no matter what's going on in our life. God's good in the good times and the bad times because the bad times, God uses those bad times to shape us and mold us and form us into his image. And God uses those bad times to grow us. That's why, you know, we can all quote Romans eight twenty eight for all things work together for good. But you know what? When your life is, is miserable and your life is turned upside down and tragedy is struck, it's hard to see the good. But faith is saying, God, I can't see the good but I know it's there because you're good. And whatever you're allowing to happen to me, you're allowing it to happen for my good, for my growth, and for your glory. <clears throat> now, of course, the writer, we've got to remember what, the, what is going on in the book of Hebrews. Of course, the writer in the book of Hebrews is, he is admonishing a group of people who after a little bit of time of walking with Jesus, they began to think that following Jesus was a little too difficult. They started facing persecution. 
they started facing ridicule. They started facing some problems. Maybe some of their friends had been, had been, uh, had been killed or, or persecuted for their faith. And so they're looking at this whole Jesus thing and saying, this isn't really what we thought it was going to be. It's a little harder than we thought it would be. There's some things we don't understand. And instead of really trying to understand it and grasp it, we're just going to give up. And so they began to fall away from their faith. And people are telling them they're crazy and they've, they've got a lot of unanswered questions. Like, you know, why is God doing this? You ever ask that question to yourself? Why is God doing this? If you haven't, you're lying because we all have. Every one of us has looked at a situation and thought, why would God allow this? You know, God says he loves me and God says I'm his child and God says he's going to bless me and God said he gave to give me an abundant, joyful life. And why is this happening? And that's what's going on in the book of Hebrews. They're saying, why is God allowing this? Or where is God when, when these bad things are happening to me? And many of the people that the writer is addressing, they began to lag behind in their faith. Their growth in God started to slow down. And so the writer tells them that they're not going to make it. They're not going to grow in their walk with God. They're not going to make it in their faith at all unless they believe that God is, that God exists and believe that following him is worth it. Following him is worth all the pain. Following him is worth all the persecution. Following him is worth all the confusion and the hard times and the unanswered questions. Following God is worth it. We live in a world where we don't face a lot of persecution for our faith yet. The day's coming. I don't know when or where, but the day's coming where it's going to be more and more difficult to be a Christian and openly live by your faith. There's days coming we're going to face persecution, but, but we don't face it right now. You know, for the most part, people don't bother us for our walk with God. And so it's fairly easy to go through the motions of the Christian life without real faith. But living like that will never please God will never be everything that he reveals. We'll, we'll never live as his disciple. We'll never be meaningfully and committed to his mission until we are convinced that God is and that he is the rewarder of those that diligently seek him. So tonight we're going to walk through the second half of Hebrews chapter 11 and we're going to see some specific examples of faith in action. Some specific examples of what faith looks like. And then we're going to see what type, where that type of faith comes from. So Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse number 17. <clears throat> By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he had received the promise of a promise, offered up his only begotten, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy, thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. So here we've got the story of Abraham. And God comes to Abraham and tells Abraham, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son. And this is a huge deal. This is, this is more than just Abraham sacrificing something he loved. This is more than God coming to one of us. And let's just be real honest here. We've all got our little idols that we, that we like. Maybe it's our phone, maybe it's TV, maybe it's money. Whatever it is, we've all got those little things that we kind of, if, if, if we lost them, we'd be like, oh man, what am I going to do? It's more than God coming to us and saying, hey, I want, you to, I want you to get rid of your phone for a couple years. 
It's God coming to Abraham and saying, hey, I want you to offer your son, but not just your son, your only son, and the promised son. Now, in those days, your son was the hope for the future. The more sons you had, the more workers you had to work the land. The more sons you had, the more help you had to tend the herds. The more income you could generate for your family. Plus, this was before Social Security and 401Ks and retirement homes. So your sons were the, your hope for the future. Because when you got old and couldn't work and were needing to retire, they were the ones who were going to take care of you. So if you had no sons, you were in a pretty bad situation. If you had no sons... You had no future. The more children you had, the more likely you were to be taken care of in your old age. Old Testament scholar William Bergman said this. He said, childlessness in any ancient text or narrative is the effective metaphor of hopelessness. For without children, there is no future, foreseeable future for yourself, for your family, for your people. And Sarah and Abraham only had one son. And he was a son they had when they were in their 90s. And God is coming to Abraham and saying, Abraham, your only son that you waited for for so long, for 25 years you waited for this son, I want you to sacrifice him to me. He was asking them to give up everything they looked for, for life, for joy, and for security. He is asking them to put their earthly hopes and dreams on the line and walk away from it all. It took faith. And they did it. They said, God, our futures are in your hands, our hope, our security, our joy. We trust you with all of it. It's incredible faith. Let's keep going. Look at verse number 21. It says, by faith, look at verse 20, I'm sorry. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning the things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying... Blessed both the sons of Joseph and worship, leaning upon the tip of the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. Of course, this is two stories of people who died when it didn't look like God was anywhere close to fulfilling his promises. Of course, you know the story years before in Genesis 12, God had come to Abraham and promised Abraham a promised land. So I'm going to give you a land and your your children are going to outnumber the stars and they're going to possess this land and it's going to be a blessing to them and they're going to have a land of milk and honey. It's going to be incredible for them. And God had continually time after time after time after time promised Israel the promised land. Jacob was Abraham's grandson. When he dies, Israel's not in the promised land. They're in Egypt. They're not living out God's best, God's vision for their life. They, they don't have their own land. They're not being a blessing. They're, they're in Egypt because of a famine and things are going in the wrong direction. They're not being made a mighty nation. They are living in someone else's land, living off the handouts of that nation. But when he dies, he leans on his staff and he repeats the promise to his sons. He says, don't forget... God promised us we're not going to stay here. God promised us we're going to be in a better land. And here's what he says. He says, so when you get there, bury my body there. He died in faith, believing God was going to keep his word. When Joseph, his son dies, Abraham's great-grandson, 
the whole family is still in Egypt. He does the same thing. He says, hey, guys, don't forget. God said we're not going to be here forever. This isn't our home. We're just, we're, just, we're just travelers through here. When God keeps his word and God fulfills his promise and he gives us the promised land, take my bones and bury them where God's, where God's told us he's going to be. He says, God will keep his word. This isn't the end of the story. Look at verse number 24. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches and the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. Now Moses, he has an incredible inheritance and all the privileges that his position could have hoped for. He's, he's not going to be leader of Egypt. He's, a, he's a, an adopted son, but he's still being raised in Pharaoh's palace. He's still being raised by the most powerful family in the, in the area. Probably the most powerful family in the world. And so he's got everything his heart could desire. He's got wealth. He's got privilege. He's got power. He's got prestige. He has a life of ease. He has one of the, mighty, the highest positions in the mightiest empires, but he walks away from all of it. And on what basis? It wasn't like he left one position of power for another position of power. He wasn't the president of Egypt going to the president of Israel. He would be leader of Israel, but that would take another 40 years. He left the halls of power to go feed sheep in the desert and wait on God. He traded the visible blessings of living in Egypt for the invisible promises of God because he believed it. Look at verse 28. Through faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Of course, now they're talking about the, the day of Passover when God sent the death angel to pass through Egypt and kill all the firstborn sons in the, in the, in the houses that didn't have the blood on it. And so, but they believed God, what God said this is going to happen. They believed God, even though nothing like this has ever happened before. This isn't an annual occurrence. This has never happened. But God says if you kill a sheep and you put the blood on the doorpost, when the death angel comes through, your family will be safe. Can you imagine trying to tell your Egyptian neighbors this? Because sometimes we, we lump all people into one category. All Egyptians are bad. You know, during World War II, all Germans were Nazis and bad. No, they weren't. There were a lot of Christian people who fought for Hitler. Why did they fight for Hitler? Because it was their country. And they had to. The SS, yeah, they were all bad. But not everybody was. So we lump, oh, all Nazis are bad. So not all Egyptians were bad. I'm sure there were some Israelites who had friends that were Egyptians because they weren't all rich, wealthy people. So you've got some Egyptian friends. Can you, you go to them and say, hey, you know, tonight you might want to kill one of your lambs and, you know, just, just for the fun of it, put the blood on the doorposts. Why? Oh, so your son doesn't die tonight. They're not going to believe you. You're going to sound like a crazy person. It's, it's exactly like Noah. You know, Noah, he's in the middle of the, of the desert. He's, he's building an ark. People come to him, Noah, what are you building? I'm building an ark. What's an ark? It's a boat. You're nowhere near the ocean, Noah. Oh, I know, but don't worry. It's going to, it's going to start raining. Noah, what's rain? 
Rains water that falls from the sky. Noah, that doesn't happen. Water comes up from the ground and water's like, you're, you're, you're crazy, Noah. You've lost your mind, Noah. And for 120 years, he's mocked, he's ridiculed. Why? Because by faith, he believed God was going to do something that had never happened before. But they believed him. The people in Egypt, they, in Israel, they believed him. And they put the blood on the doorpost because they trusted what God had said, even though there was no proof of it. Even though there was no evidence of it. Look at verse number 29. By faith, they passed through the dry sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians, assaying to do, were drowned. So now, the children of Israel, they've trusted God. They've put the, door on the, blood, the blood on the doorpost. The death angels come. Every firstborn in the Egyptian homes have died, including Pharaoh's. So Pharaoh releases them, and they, they leave Egypt, and they're joyful. They're singing praises. The Bible says they walked out of there with all the wealth of Egypt. Basically, the Egyptians said, just take whatever you want and go. And so they were grabbing gold and silver and all the things they could. And they're, they're leaving, and they're praising God, and they're happy. And God marches them down to the Red Sea, and they're like, okay, well, I guess we're going to have a beach picnic now. And then all of a sudden, Pharaoh's army starts coming down on them. And they're trapped between the Red Sea, mountain ranges, and an army that their entire purpose, they're not capturing them and taking them back. They're going to slaughter them. Say, now what, God? Now what are we going to do? We're, we're, we're trapped by the Red Sea. And so they ask God, God, what are we going to do? And God says, go forward. But there's an ocean there, God. Well, I, I know. And here's what God tells them. God says, I know. Just be silent and trust me. Just shut up and walk. Just believe God. He goes, trust me. Go forward. I will fight for you. All you have to do is be silent. And they, they trust him. They face the Red Sea. And they watch God part it. And they walk through on dry ground. Then they turn around and they see the, the Egyptian army coming behind them. And God says, trust me. I'll fight for you. And he closes it up and destroys the army. Look at verse number 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. So now, this is, again, 40 years later. They've been in the wilderness. They've, they've angered God. They've upset God. They've seen God bless them. It's been 40 years of just kind of a roller coaster ride with God. And finally, all the generation that didn't believe God is, is died off, and except for Joshua and, and Caleb and Moses has died. And so Joshua leads them across the Jordan River, and they come up upon this great city of Jericho. They're going against an incredible army, and they go to God... Say, okay, God, what's the strategy for beating this army? Because they know God's going to do it. They believe, God, we've seen you fight for us for 40 years. We've seen you provide for us. We've, we remember the stories, God. We know you're going to do it, God. What's the plan to beat this army? And God says, okay, here's what we're going to do. Everybody's going to line up. And every day, once a day, for six days, you're going to walk around the walls. And you're not going to say anything. You're just going to stare at them. But don't say anything. Just walk around and stare. Think, okay, I guess we're, you know, psychological war warfare first. We're going to psych them out and really, really get them scared. And he goes, and on the seventh day, he goes, in the seventh day, you're going to love this. You're going to walk around the wall seven times. And on the seventh time, you're going to stop. You're going to face the wall. You're going to yell. Some of you are going to blow a trumpet, and the wall's going to fall. Like, what? No battering rams? 
No, no flanking maneuvers, no, no battle plan. We're going to walk and yell, and that's what's going to happen. Sounds crazy, but guess what? They walked, they yelled, and the walls came down. They trusted God. They did it, and God gave them the city. Now, in these passages and more we're going to read tonight, there are a lot of things we learn about faith, but I want to see three truths that the Bible tells about faith. First, number one, faith is in response to God's revelation. Again, verse number six. For if the Lord... Nope, that's, verse, that's chapter 12. <clears throat> verse number six. <clears throat> but without faith, it's impossible to please God, to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Faith is relatively simple. It believes that God exists, and it believes that obeying Him is worth it. Now, especially in today's society, people look at that phrase that he exists and they say, well, that's, that's the problem. How do you know God exists? How can you prove the existence of God? And it almost seems like Hebrews is saying that you have to make some blind leap of faith into darkness and just say, well, I believe God exists with no evidence. I just believe it because, but that's not what it's saying. When he says, believe that he exists, it means that you believe that God is as God has revealed himself to us. And God reveals himself to us in a lot of ways. Yes, he reveals himself through the word of God. We see his love, his mercy, his compassion, his, his hate of sin. We see those things in the word of God. But the Bible never sets out to prove God philosophically. It just points to places where God is speaking and says, do you recognize that as the voice of God? The Bible says you can recognize God in creation. Psalms 19 says, the, he, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day utter a speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. The book of Romans says that if you can look at nature, if you can look at creation, if you can look at the world around you and say there is no God, it says you're crazy. It says the world itself proves the existence of God. Romans says, so that no man is without excuse. Well, that all came from the Big Bang. That takes more faith to believe that than anything else. The Bible says the world creation itself. It says you, if you can't sit out in the field at night and look up at the stars and know there's a God, something's wrong with you. You hear his voice in creation. You hear his voice in the guilt you feel when you commit sin. That's the voice of God. That's God revealing himself to you. That's God revealing his holiness and his purity to you. You, you see God, you hear his voice in the longing in your heart for eternity. You, you see God in the sense of gratitude you feel during your happiest moment. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, atheists have a problem of feeling profoundly grateful in their happiest moments because they have no idea who to thank. You see God and you hear his, his voice when you, when you turn to in moments of distress. Faith is a response to the revelation of God. It takes God at his word and believes that God is as he reveals himself to be. We recognize the voice of God in Jesus and when we can't even understand everything about him or his plan, we trust him because we recognize him as God. If Jesus is who he says he is, 
that we can trust him about the things we don't understand. Famous church father once said this. He said the Christian experience is faith-seeking understanding. It's saying, I want to understand. And, you know, sometimes we get a flash of understanding. Sometimes we get a glimpse of what God's doing and a glimpse of understanding. Sometimes we don't. But we want to understand. But in the meantime, when I can't understand all that's happening, all that God's doing, I hold on to what God has revealed about himself. I hold on to the fact that God is loving. God is good. God is kind. God is powerful. God is doing something in my life even if I don't understand it all now. The source of my faith is not an explanation. It's not something I can explain, but it's a revelation. Faith is a response to revelation. Number two, faith is action. The people in this chapter, they're famous because of their faith. But when the writer describes them, they're doing something. They're in action. Not just Abraham had faith and sat around and did nothing all day. No, Noah built. Abraham sacrificed. Jacob blessed. Joseph instructed. Moses chose. Joshua fought. Faith is synonymous with action. Without any action... There's no faith. Faith is a conviction that is expressed by a choice to do what you believe God wants you to do. Obedience is not something you do later down the road after you have faith. Belief doesn't become faith until you act upon it. Faith is not believing the rope will hold you. It's just leaning back on the rope and trusting. There's no faith from obedience. Faith is belief in action. And then the third truth we want, to, we want to see. Don't get excited. This one's a little longer. Faith takes a bold dare on the unseen. Look at verse number 32. <clears throat> Got to flip back. <clears throat> verse number 32. And what shall I say more? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, and of Barak, and of Samson, and of Jephthah, and of David also, and of Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained powers, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword out of weak, weakness, were made strong, waxed valiant in the fight, turned to fight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and of scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered around in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. There are, are two groups listed in these, these passages. Group one, they received incredible deliverance from their faith. Gideon, Barak, David, the prophets they mentioned. They, through their faith, received incredible deliverance from God. Then there's group two. Group two died in, in terrible, horrible ways with nothing on earth to validate their faith. Which group you want to be a part of? 
I want to be the Davids. I don't want to be the, oh, yeah, that guy, yeah, he was burned alive for his faith and never really saw anything come of it. I don't want to be that guy. But they both had one thing in common. They believed the word of God and they risked everything for it. If you require validation for your faith, you're not going to make it. If you require God to prove himself before you act on faith, number one, it's not faith. Number two, you're never going to make it in your walk with God. The life of faith requires a confidence in God that you can't always feel and a confidence in his promises that you can't always see. So the question is, are you willing to risk everything on something you can't see? Are you willing to risk everything on something you can't touch? Are you willing to risk everything on someone who you can't audibly speak to? On something you can't wrap your arms around? Like Abraham, will you obey all that God's commands with no way to believe that it's going to happen? Like Jacob and Joseph, can you have hope in unwavering darkness? When the day is dark and the outlook is bleak, can you rejoice that God has appointed all things for his purposes? When it looks impossible, will you believe that he's still going to keep his word and he's still going to bring his promises to pass? Can you trust that God will mend what's been broken and turn your tragedy into triumph? In the darkest hour of the night, can you get up with hope because you know the dawn is coming? How you respond to disappointment, how you respond to tragedy reveals whether or how much you actually believe God. Your ability to be joyful in all things is a measure of your faith. Do you trust that God will provide in impossible situations when you pursue his will like Israel did at the Red Sea or like they did when facing Jericho? Do you believe, do you really believe that the invisible you are willing to put on the line for all of eternity? Faith is a bold, is a bold dare on the promises of an unseen God. Faith's object is revealed in the word of God, and it, it is not a positive feeling. Faith is not a hunch. It's not a wish upon a star. It is believing the promises of God. Faith is not uh, the name it, claim it, because if God hasn't named it, you can't claim it. If God hasn't said you're going to get it, don't claim it because he's not going to give it to you. Martin Luther said this. He says, faith is a, is a living, bold trust in God's grace, so certain of God's favor that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. Such confidence and knowledge of God's grace makes you ever joyful and bold in your relationship to God and everyone else. Because of it, you freely, willingly, and joyfully do good to everyone, serve everyone, and suffer all kinds of things, never ceasing to love and praise and rejoice in the God that has shown you grace. But the author continues. Look at verse number 39 again. And all these have obtained a good report through faith, Receive not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. We have reason to believe that all of these Old Testament saints that there's listed in this, this book right here, this chapter right here, died trusting that Christ would come. They died believing that God would send a Redeemer. We see the love and faithfulness demonstrated at the cross. We see the trustworthiness of God demonstrated at the resurrection. 
What they saw in shadow, we see in completion. Of course, you can trust Jesus with your finances. Of course, you can trust Jesus with your kids. He, he sought you when he, you were a stranger. He reconciled you to himself when you were an enemy. He who did all this, who did not withhold his own son for us, will he not through him give us all things freely? So tonight we have to ask ourselves, are you living a life of faith? In Cairo, I read recently, in Cairo there is a small, dusty, unmarked grave out in a way out location. I've never, I've never seen it, but I've heard that you would never know it's there. It's all overgrown with grass and it, it lies, in this grave lies the body of William Borden. He is the heir to the Borden Milk Company. He graduated from Yale in 1909. He had a life of luxury and power laid out before him. Borden was, was a huge company back then. It's still a big company today, but it was, at that time it was one of America's biggest dairy producers. He had become a Christian as a teenager, and he, he told his, life, his parents he was going to give his life, giving the gospel to the Muslim people. His parents were so upset with him and so distraught that they refused to help him at all, even refused to buy him a car. So William Borden, he gave away hundreds of thousands of dollars to missions. He went to Egypt to help give the gospel to the Muslim people. And after only four months of zealous ministry in Egypt, he got spinal meningitis and died at the age of 25. Someone asked him right before he died what he thought about his decision. And he said simply, no regrets. On his tombstone in Cairo is a brief description of his sacrifices for the kingdom of God and for the Muslim people, followed by the simple phrase, Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. God has required us, has asked us, to live a life of bold faith that pleases Him. Do we have that type of faith? Well, we're willing to put everything on the line and trust Him for everything without knowing how it's going to end. Just because we know God is and God loves us.